Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Some of the seats need a little WD-40, have you noticed that? It, as you sit down, it's a little bit like a colony of seals, half-heartedly grunting. It's not an unpleasant sound. So I was heading out the house on my way down to the nursing home to see my mother, wondering what to say this time. How do you maintain a conversation with the woman who taught you to speak when she can no longer speak? And my eyes settled on a small folded pamphlet, which is extraordinarily significant to me. You see, this little pamphlet is called Day by Day. It's nothing impressive. It's just got the seven days of the week, and for each day, there's three lovely Bible verses and a simple prayer. Not many words, but the thing with that little leaflet is, um, what many of you don't know about me, is I, I was sent to boarding school aged 11. And some of you are thinking, oh, okay, it all makes sense. <laughs> and and um, I, I, I hated it. It was so difficult. The, the, the school was incredibly dark uh, in all the ways you'd expect, and perhaps one or two you might not. Uh, I'm not going to go into it, but it was... Even now, that boarding school looks back on that as their time of greatest shame. And I was an 11-year-old, lost in the middle of it all. I was so scared, and I was really homesick. And my mum had given me this little day-by-day leaflet, perfectly pitched for an 11-year-old. And I was sleeping in a dormitory of 30 boys, and um, it was before the time of mobile phones. And I had a little, anyone remember those little pen torch things? I had a little pen torch. And I'd put my head under the covers and use my pen torch to read that day's three promises and prayer. It only takes about two minutes. And um, it brought enormous comfort to me as an 11-year-old boy in a very, very scary very dark world. And I was reading a book the other day, and this leaflet that I'd forgotten about fell out of it. Day by day fell out of it. It must have been stuffed in there for literally decades. And it sort of stopped my heart a little bit just to see it. It's nothing impressive. And so I saw it as I was leaving the house on my way to see my mom. I thought, I know, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. And I'll read her the three promises for today and the little prayer for today. And so this leaflet that helped me so profoundly in one of the darkest, scariest, most difficult times of my life is now helping my mom in undoubtedly the darkest and scariest time of her life, unable to speak, unable to walk after a massive stroke, on her way home to be with Jesus. 
And I say she can't speak. She says yes a lot. That's about it. But I brought the leaflet out and I told my mum, you gave me this once and it helped me through a time that felt hopeless and scary. And mum, I want to give it back to you now. I'm going to read it to you. And she looked so intent as I read the verses. And at the end, the woman who only ever says yes said a different word. She said, wonderful. You must, you must understand this. That beyond the realm of social media and self-help books and clenching your buttocks, trying your best, the word of God will carry you through the darkest times that life will bring. And so at the start of this term, <laughs> with all that a new academic year presents, I know we've just been praying for some of you teachers. Now the kids have gone out. Those of us who are parents can all admit we're secretly quite pleased that they're going back to school. Sammy and I are at the stage with our two boys are now out the other end, they left home, and we are so excited when they come home, and we're actually quite excited when they leave again. <laughs> but through the seasons of life, the highs and the lows, the storms that come, the word of God is a truth that has stood the test of time. And if you think for a single second that the great truths of our culture at this moment, the things that epistemologically they say, this is absolute, are more stable and more reliable and more life-giving than the word of God that has been proven down 2,000 years to every tribe and tongue. You're missing a trick. Anchor yourself in the promises of God, the truths of God, and the word of God. And so today we, at the start of this term, are actually concluding a series that began on the 17th of June, uh, looking at the parables of Jesus. And we're today going to look at arguably the greatest story ever told. Uh, this is a parable that has the power proven down centuries to revolutionize the way you see God, and therefore the way you see yourself, and therefore the way you do life. And so this is the parable of the prodigal son. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, shall we? Luke 15, 11 to 24. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But whilst he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Rehearsed speech, you see. But the father said, bad actor. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Amen. Hallelujah. Please be seated. For 2,000 years, this beautiful archetypal story has inspired artists, it has annoyed legalists, it's rattled the cages of religion and has brought hope to people whose lives are broken and messy. One of the greatest artists of all time, Rembrandt, painted perhaps his greatest picture depicting, meditating upon this parable. Uh, And uh, it hangs in the Hermitage uh, Art Museum in St. Petersburg to, to this day. I think we've got a picture of it. Here it is. And I don't know if you can see there the the gentleness and fragility of the father as he puts his hands on his son. I don't know if you can see. There's, I think there's one bare foot and one very broken sandal on the son and he's covered in rags. You feel the sense of shame as he buries his head in the belly of the father. And see the older brother to the side, hands folded, resenting the whole thing. The art historian Kenneth Clark said, those who have seen the original of this painting in St. Petersburg may be forgiven for claiming it as the greatest picture ever painted. You may want to just Google it and maybe even just meditate upon it in quiet times this week. Henri Nouwen, the great Dutch Catholic priest, wrote probably his greatest book, a best-selling book, after spending weeks in St. Petersburg meditating upon this painting every day. It's called Return of the Prodigal, The Journey Home. Uh, One of my good friends who's sometimes spoken at a maestro, Charlie Mackesy, has been obsessed with this story for many years. He's painted it, drawn it, and sculpted it. Here's one of his sculptures. um, And you see here the father just embracing the son, almost half dead, sort of hanging in the father's arms. And uh, this, this, this story has got into the head and under the skin of generation upon generation. But imagine being in the crowd, hearing it for the first time. Imagine the reactions on the faces. It's going to be important for us today to feel the force of how shocking this scenario is so that we can also feel the force of how shocking the grace exhibited is to come. 
Firstly, notice the outrageous demand of the son. He, he goes to his dad. He's a younger brother, to make matters worse. He goes to his dad and basically says, I wish you were dead. He says, I guess I'm going to inherit half of everything down the line. I want it now. I want to cash the will in now. I mean, it's unthinkable. Many of you are like, I've got a pretty broken relationship with my parents, but I don't think I'd dare have that conversation. That's how outrageous this is. And what's even more shocking is where we would go, if, if one of our kids tried it on us, and some of you are like, I've got a six-year-old who tries it regularly. <laughs> but if, we, we'd be like, yeah, nice try. But here, I mean, the crowd's shocked by what the son uh, asks, but they're even more shocked by the father's response. He goes, all right, then. I mean, there's a sort of a weakness here. And he, everything he's worked for all his life divides it in half and gives half it away. It's shocking. And the son eventually gets bored. He's just partying. He's coming home drunk every night with the money that his dad had worked so hard for, adding insult to injury. Eventually he leaves home and he blows it all on wild living and ends up working with pigs. And you know that for the Jewish audience, this is the dirtiest animal you can imagine. Jesus is deliberately choosing a pig because he is trying to depict shame, guilt, dirt, a sense of revulsion in his audience. He could have said he worked with unicorns. He could have said he, he worked with fluffy sheep, pigs. He's deliberate. And, and, and then Jesus is watching the reaction on their faces and he's getting a reaction. He thinks, I'm going to drive it home a little harder. And he says, and he got so hungry, he wanted to eat what the pigs are eating. Oh! And eventually he decides... You know, we say it's a great story about repentance. Not sure it is. He just realized I get a better deal at home. Here's the speech that will unlock the door. I am not worthy to be called your son. <laughs> Make me like one of your hired sons. He's just saying, look, I know you can't have me back. I have burnt my bridges. I have blown it. I can't expect to be given any favors, but at least could. His greatest hope is the father might let him become a servant in his house. I wonder what shame looks like for you today. Because maybe that's what Jesus would use as an example here. To hook something that he needs to say into your heart. I wonder what, what the thing is in you. You think, if anyone ever knew that, I'd die. Or maybe it's not something you have done or you do or that you, you think. It, it may be just something that conceptually you think that would be the worst. That's what this story is speaking into. That's why it's galvanized Charlie Mackenzie and Rembrandt and Henri Nouwen and everyone else. And then we're told, whilst the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And at this point, actually, the Pharisees in the crowd are pretty happy. They're like, mm-hmm, yeah, all that shame, all that stuff you've done. Yeah, the father sees. Yeah, yeah, you're in trouble. 
the all-seeing eye has spotted, you know, judgment to come. Whilst he was still a long while, the father saw him. God is looking. You haven't managed to avoid his gaze. And Jesus continues, and the father was filled with, and I imagine Jesus pausing at this moment, having a little twinkle in his eye. He, he's a master storyteller. He's playing the crowd. And he was filled with, fill in the blank, and they are. They're like righteous anger, indignation. I mean, I've got to admit, if this is one of my boys, I, I'm not a bad dad, you know. I would, I would welcome them back in. But I would be standing there, arms folded, mm-hmm, what have you got to say for yourself? I, I'd, I'd make him suffer a bit first. And maybe in a few weeks, and the odd comment at Christmas, you know, after a sherry. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? Well, he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. compassionate about the message version here says his heart was pounding the father's response to your shadows your shame is instinctively compassion it isn't I am a God of love I will have to be loving towards you Mm, there you go You are loved. It's like he just sees you and he's filled with compassion towards you. It's not rational. You can't fit God in a test tube. He's this pulsing, loving, colorful, creative, joyful, life-giving, forgiving, gracious, beautiful being. Obsessed with you. In love with you. Filled with compassion. There's a lovely true story about a man who met his elderly former teacher. He said to the old man, he said, do you you remember me? And the old teacher said, no, I don't. I taught a lot of people. He said, okay. Um, The old man said, well, what what do you do? What, What have you done with your life since I taught you? And he said, oh, I actually, I became a teacher. So the old man said, oh, it's wonderful, great, great career. And the younger man said, I actually became a teacher because of you. It wasn't just you were a good teacher and you were, but there was a moment in my life that has defined my whole life. That's to do with you. There was a particular day, he said, you need to know I grew up in a home that people went out of prison and... Uh, you know, if you wanted something, you took it, and if you got caught, you lied about it, and that was what you did. And a boy from a nicer house than me came into school one day, and he'd been given a really nice wristwatch, and I wanted it, and I stole it. And I had it in my pocket. And unfortunately, this boy realized that I'd taken it, and he told you, and what you did was you said, we're shutting the door, no one's leaving this room till we find the wristwatch and you made us all stand in a circle with our eyes closed we didn't really understand why we had to do this it was a bit weird but you went around the circle and you felt in all of our pockets and you came to my blazer pocket and you you found the wristwatch 
And what I never understood is you carried on, you went around all the other pockets, you finished the circle, and then you let us open our eyes, you sent us back to our desk, you held up the watch, you said, I found the watch, you gave it back to the boy, and that was the end of it. I thought I was about to get shamed and bombasted and told off. You never did. I've never understood that. I always hoped I might meet you one day, but the thing is, it, it showed me the power that a teacher has to shape a life by not putting people under guilt and shame, but showing grace. And the old man said, I actually do remember that incident. The reason I didn't know it was you is this. When I went around the circle feeling the pockets, I shut my eyes too. I didn't want to know who'd done it. I just wanted to give the watch back to the boy who had lost his watch. What a beautiful picture of grace. God's not there keeping tally of all your sins. His heart is for you. He sees, but his heart is filled with compassion. And then Jesus says that the father ran towards the son whilst he was still a long way off. So this is the antithesis of my arms folded. Mm -hmm, here he comes, about time too. Let's see what he's got to say for himself, posture. It's undignified. Remember, it's a hot country, and he's wearing a long robe. So absolutely, definitely, he's hoisting his skirts up above his knees. Not a good look. And he's running, and he, he's an old man. You can't tell me he's not got a bit of belly. He's sweating profusely. It's an unnecessary run. It is an undignified moment. You know God is undignified. For 2,000 years, we depict him on the cross. We have to cover his nakedness because he is more undignified than us. He couldn't give us stuff about his reputation. He cares about you. And so the father runs towards him. It's unnecessary. It's undignified. And you imagine the son. Oh, hell. He, the old man is running towards me. Is he going to punch me? Is he gone insane? And then the father reaches the son and throws his arms around him and starts kissing him. And ooh, there's a visceral response from the Pharisees because they know this guy smells of excrement and he has been touching pigs. He is physically unclean. He is unhygienic. You've all walked past people in the street who smell like that. You sat next to people on the train. And it's worse than that. He is spiritually unclean. He is carrying, he's defiled according to their law. And so Jesus here, this is like a sucker punch on religion. He's saying, God the Father throws his arms around the dirt in you. He doesn't wait for you to have a bath, get changed. Nice clean white t-shirt, Levi's. Oh, you may now hug me, Father. There's this gut-wrenching response from the Father. He makes himself unclean, hugging us in our shame. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. This is a, 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 a foreshadowing of the cross. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for you and for me in this. Whilst you were still a sinner, whilst I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. 
whilst we had nothing to offer, hadn't prayed any great prayer, hadn't jumped through any hoops, whilst we were covered in excrement, whilst we were spiritually and physically and mentally unhygienic, he threw his arms around us and kissed us on the cross. Please note that the son has not yet started his apology. Now, some of us grew up in traditions where the apology was everything. It was the pin code that got into the bank account, right? If I, if I say sorry to God, then I get forgiveness, you know, heaven, relationship with God. That's, 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 that's the key. Now, please hear me. Repentance is vital. But do notice how rock and roll Jesus is being in this story with the whole chronology of things. The son has not yet even apologized. Grace is more powerful than sin. A God here depicted who is relational rather than transactional. For whom the person is always more important than the principle. Do you know that God does not regret choosing you. With all your underachievement and your shame and your sin and saying things you don't mean to say, and the second marriage and the thing you said to your mother last week and the feeling like a bad parent and the fact that you're not even on plan B or C but D by now and the way you feel when you look at the bank account or you look in the mirror he loves you. He accepts you. See, this is exactly what 1 Samuel 12, verse 22 says. The Lord was pleased to make you his own. <laughs> pleased. I was preaching on this verse once. The Lord was pleased to make you his own. And it struck me there were probably people present who felt that God, deep down, had made a mistake choosing them that they were a disappointment to God. And so I, I did this thing, and it was quite a big meeting, there about 3,000 people there, and I, I said, anyone, you, you feel God maybe made a bit of a mistake with you? <laughs> you feel a lot of shame, a lot of sense that God must disapprove you. If you want to just stand, we'd love to pray for you. And all these people stood around the venue. And then I did something which I re immediately regretted, but the words were out of my mouth, so it was too late. It happens a lot. Uh, I just said, now the rest of us sitting down. It seemed like a good idea in my head, a really lousy idea when I spoke it out. Why don't the rest of us just applaud them to try and communicate the Father's heart and approval? And I was like, this is so cheesy. These poor people are standing up, feeling unworthy. And everyone's going, oh, well done. It's like, it's rubbish, terrible moment. Pastorally insensitive. Oh, it's all right, a bit of clapping will sort you out. Anyway, I just move on and try to avoid my wife's gaze in these moments. <laughs> she puts her hands in her head. At the end, a man came up to me. His name is Lawrence. He's in floods of tears. And he said to me, uh, yesterday, just before the evening meeting, I felt such a failure. I felt so broken. I felt so... Um, hopeless about my life, I said to God, God, I just beg you 
to send me someone in the next 24 hours who'll just tell me I'm okay. Just, just tell me that I'm not a complete disappointment to you, that you still believe in me. That was his prayer. Okay. And he said, I figured I was giving God pretty good odds because I was at a massive Christian event full of like super nice people. The chance of one out of the 3,000 saying something vaguely encouraging in its 24 hours, it felt like I was giving God a low ball, you know? And he said, believe it or not, I went uh, 22 and a half hours, not a single word of affirmation or encouragement from a single person. He said, I nearly didn't come to the meeting this evening. I couldn't face it. I, I felt it just confirmed that I was a massive disappointment to God. He said, I dragged myself here. The worship was appalling. <laughs> it, it wasn't Pete Burton leading it. He said, I just couldn't get into it. He said, you stood up. I did not want to. And it, but when you said, I'm preaching about this verse, the Lord is pleased. He made, I thought, maybe, maybe this is God sending that one person. So he said, that's why I stood at the end. I was there having a bit of a moment with God, and suddenly I heard this applause rise up in the tent. And I opened my eyes, and I realized that the living God hadn't just sent one person to encourage me. At the 20 fourth hour he had sent 3,000 to speak his affirmation and love over me this is the heart of the father towards you and me depicted so powerfully in this story so the son finds himself being hugged and it's awkward you know one of those awkward half hugs where someone else hugs you and you you're like the huggy but not the hugger I'm pretty sure it's one of those. He's like frozen. Or maybe he's just got one hand around doing the old pat on the back, which is a kind of a get off me too much. You know? But the father's all like, he's like, he's like a Labrador. <laughs> I love you, you know? He's frozen. And then, and then he make, goes into his speech. So it, there's got to have been a moment. Because like, if you're close up hugging, you can't do he, he, He's had to go, <clears throat> excuse me, he's take a couple of steps. Like, Dial down a bit, God. Ever you know? done that? God, too much, you know. And he moves into his rehearsed speech. I like to imagine that it's on like a, a, a card he gets out of his back pocket. And he goes into his, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, all of that stuff. And what's interesting is actually, although he is word for word repeating what he had prepared in the pig pen to say, he doesn't finish the speech, if you read it carefully. That can only mean one thing. The father interrupts him with these words before he's even properly, you know, before you've even finished your alpha course. Is that heresy? <laughs> before you've even finished the proper prayer of apology, before you fully understood how a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago can actually forgive you for your sin, before you've even got there with half of that stuff, he has interrupted you with these words. Bring a robe, cover his shame, and people... The servants are coming up with these really nice robes, heavy robes. Are you sure? He's kind of dirty. Could we give him a shower first, please? And then, no, put it on him. Cover his shame. And then he says, put a ring on his finger. This is shocking because the last time he saw this boy... The boy had taken half of the wealth that he had accrued and has wasted it. And the first thing he does is hands him a ring. Now you and I are going, uh, Father, sorry, Dorfin, lovely sentiment. Not yet. A little too soon? 
You know, it's all of that. He's put it. Now, in those days, a ring was a credit card. You know, you took the signet ring. You, if, you, if you were saying to your servant, can you go and buy a cow at the market or whatever, you gave him the signet ring, and he put a mark in the wax and said, the master will pay. Oh, yeah, it's, you're his servant. Yeah, definitely. So the first thing he does when the son comes back, having squandered half his wealth, is hands him a credit card. Listen, this is exactly what you and I struggle with. We don't want God to trust us as much as he trusts us. We kind of want him to punish us a little bit because we feel so ashamed. Just give us a hard time for a few weeks. Stop all this hugging and kissing and robing and credit carding. You're doing my head in. You don't know who I am and what a mess I am. I don't trust myself. You shouldn't trust me. And then, <laughs> beautiful, he says, let's put sandals on his feet. This is not like a Birkenstock moment. As you probably know, in the culture at that time, if you were a servant, you walked around barefoot. If you were a son or a daughter, you wore shoes. He's saying, you are my son. Don't give me any of this nonsense of can I be your hired Hand, you, you don't stand a chance because every time I see this hired hand walk in the room, I'm going to throw my arms around him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to give stuff to him because you are not, no matter what you call yourself, you're my son. He's saying, I trust you, have a credit card. I'm proud of you. I'm not ashamed of you. And you're, but you should be ashamed of me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I think. You don't know what I've done I am not worthy and he goes mm -hmm, first correct thing you've actually said but I love you and I'm proud of you get shoes on your feet and walk like a son or a daughter of the most high God let's throw a party listen as we come into land I want you to know this there is always more grace in God than sin in you there is always more grace in God than sin in you. There is nothing that you have said or done. There is nothing you could say or could do that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because it was never about your performance. He was never disillusioned with you because he never had any illusions about you in the first place. He is a God of grace. Take one step towards him. That's all. Maybe being here at church today is your one step. And he will come running towards you, undignified, unnecessary, with ridiculous levels of pride and trust and restoration and celebration and reconciliation and forgiveness. He loves you. I want to finish with a beautiful thing that Raniero Cantalamessa says. Raniero Cantalamessa has been very old now. Met him a couple of times. Amazing, brilliantly, brilliantly clever man. He has been preacher to the last three popes. No one in history has ever done that before. It's kind of a big deal when you're the personal preacher to the pope. And he says this. This is the message that supports and explains all the other messages. The love of God is the answer to all the whys in the Bible. The why of creation, the why of the incarnation, the why of redemption. The, if the written word of God 
in the Bible could be changed into a spoken word and become one single voice, the voice more powerful than the roaring of the sea would cry out, the Father loves you. Everything else is secondary. At the heart of the universe is a God who loves you, who smiles when he sees you. And if we can dare to begin to accept the unconditional affection of God, it will change the way we live our lives, the way we do relationships, the choices we make. Take one step towards him, he comes running towards you. There is always more grace in him than sin in you. And so we'd love just to pray for a few people. This feels like a key Sunday, first Sunday in September. You know, there's always three starts of the year, aren't there? First of January, start of September, and then start of the financial year. A key Sunday to posture our hearts. I can't think of a better way to conclude this series on the parables, but also to launch into this term start of this academic year than centering ourselves back in the love of God. That whether you're an 11-year-old frightened out of his brains at boarding school or an 80-year-old woman who can no longer speak, has little left to live for but a hope to return to the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God is the anchor of our lives. And it may be that for you, this is a bit new today. You're thinking, I kind of believe in God, but I had no concept that at the heart of what Christians believe is a God who is love like this. And maybe you want to take that step towards him today. If you do, I promise you, he will come running. This room is full of people who's got that testimony. I took a step. I didn't even know if I meant the prayer. Maybe the prayer went something like this. I don't even know if you're real, but if you are, <laughs> I think I'm sorry. But am I just saying I'm sorry to try and manipulate you into yeah, all that stuff? Take one step towards him. He comes running towards you. So maybe today is your moment to use the phrase of Jesus in this story to come to your senses. To think, why am I here amongst these pigs when I'd have a better life in the Father's house? Come to your senses. Return to the Father. He loves you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be better than you thought it could be. Maybe some of us here today, this stirs up some pretty deep things because one of the reasons we find this so hard to believe is that our own parents were nothing like this. Maybe they were bad, absent, very broken, very ungracious, very manipulative, overly punishing, harsh. You could never meet their demands, emotionally distant and cold. And something that within you will forever be six years old finds it hard to believe in an ultimate father who comes running and hugs you and kisses you and covers your shame and says, I'm proud of you and I trust you. Romans 8 says, the spirit of God within us cries, Abba, Father. And so as we respond in a moment, allow the Holy Spirit to come and 
fill us afresh. He reveals to us the smile, the kindness, the love, the acceptance, the affirmation of the Father. I did, as I was praying, uh, sense there might be someone here as well, specifically. This is a little out of the context of the story, but I, I, I sense the Spirit saying to someone here over the summer, you feel deeply ashamed about the way that you have or haven't parented. You just feel a real failure as a parent. And again, if that's the area of shame, I believe the Father wants to come and show you his love. Let's stand together, shall we, if we're able to do so. And so, Father, we thank you that you love us and you love us and you love us. Thank you that the heart of all reality is your goodness and your kindness and your grace. Lord, when we sense this, we can only say we're the whole realm of nature mine. We're an offering far too small love, so amazing, so divine demands my life, my heart, my all. So we'd love just to pray for one or two people. Um, some of you just, you know, you've heard what you needed to hear, but I know there'll be others. It's quite deep within you saying, I, I, I need an encounter with God. I, I want to take that step towards the Father. It may be that you're returning to the Father now. It may be the particular areas of shame. It may be to do with um, the way you were parented and needing the Spirit to come and reveal the Father's love for you. But as we prepare to head into this term, we'd love just to pray for one or two people. We won't be able to take long on it, but I just think it's a significant moment. So um, you know how we do this here. Uh, if you want to receive prayer, just either turn to someone with you uh, on one side or another. Pick the one who looks least scary and has the freshest breath and just say, would you pray for me? But but if you'd like someone to pray for you, um, just come down the front now uh, and, and we'll do that. In the balcony, just do feel free to make your way down. And we just want to make a bit of time to pray for people who'd like to receive some prayer. So uh, as we just uh, quietly sing, just come on down the front. Those of you saying, yeah, this really spoke to me today. I need to receive some prayer. So.